I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. So why are secrets important? There's plenty of occasions where I send a message and I only want the receiver to read it. I mean, on one hand, I can mail someone a postcard, but anyone touching it along the way can easily read it. That's fine. I'm well aware and great with that. On the other hand, when would it require that I need to put it in an envelope? Put on a wax seal with a stamp? And there's plenty of occasions where you want to go a step further and somehow mix up or codify the information in there such that no one could read it, even if they open it. Many aspects of our lives rely on public channels. The postal system, for example. The phone system. Radio. Broadcast TV. For that matter, the internet itself. What about a simple example like an American football game? The quarterback will yell out the play right before they do it. Everyone on both sides of the team can hear it. And despite it being public, everyone on that team knows exactly what to do, whilst their opponents have no idea. Similarly, this could be done by speaking a different language. When I'm sitting in America talking on the phone in Vietnamese, you're welcome to listen all you want, but you'll have no idea what we're talking about. We could also use jargon, slang, abbreviations, and there's countless ways that we can obfuscate or codify our communications. But can we put a dollar amount on secrets? When does it really matter the most? Well, if you're a nerdy historian like I am, then the most obvious modern examples would be 20th century warfare. That wasn't the birth of cryptography, secrets, and codes. However, around that time is when it became a science. Cryptography. Cryptanalysis. Ideally, in a large-scale global conflict, your team is able to communicate perfectly secretly whilst you can listen to and understand 100% of their communication. Diplomatic, political, news, troop movements, meetings of all the top generals, those are juicy. Day and location of future attacks, ooh. You could also think of the 1930s and 40s as like the Cambrian explosion of codes, systems, and strategies. That also coincided with the birth of computers, as we would define them now. By then, IBM had already been making punch card computers for over a decade. America just got fully electrified. Tesla, Edison, radio, record players, telegraph, phone systems. New technology begets new problems, which necessitate innovative solutions. Throughout the war in the Pacific, the Japanese relied on their coding system, nicknamed Code Purple. Now, this was a brilliant piece of engineering, folks. In its day, it was the most sophisticated coding machine ever built. On top of that, the Japanese had dozens of different coding systems. Imagine you as an admiral, 
Have a stack of papers put on your desk. Here's the full decrypted, time-stamped communication of the entire Navy and all branches of military of the entire Japanese forces for the last month. Cheat codes. You're playing a game of poker, but you can see their hand. You thoroughly pierced the fog of war. What's that worth, huh? From the broken JN-25, he was able to determine the location of the Japanese operation, the forces the Japanese intended to deploy, and indeed the starting date for the operation itself. Almost everything a commander would want to know about his enemy. While the smaller Japanese strike force pounded midway, American carrier-based aircraft pounced on the main Japanese fleet. The battle raged for three days. The Japanese losses included four aircraft carriers, 275 planes, a heavy cruiser, three destroyers, and 3,500 men. The U.S. lost one carrier, 150 planes, and a destroyer. It was the most stunning defeat that the Japanese Navy had ever suffered. The cryptoanalysts broke code purple. What's that worth? The term information war has actually been around a long time. Fun fact, Sun Tzu's Art of War spends a whole section of his book talking about information war. Oh yeah, instead of sending out one messenger, he'll send out 11. One real one and 10 fake ones with fake information. If they get captured, tortured, letter gets seized, whatever, that's fine. If we consider information war being surprising the enemy and catching them unaware, having a tricky strategy, having a bunch of hidden troops outflanking the enemy, spreading false information and or propaganda. So really the idea of information war has been a cornerstone of all forms of conflict since the dawn of time. But you know, for most of those millennia, the best you could do, send a messenger to verbally tell your receiver your message or information. Now, the 20th century changes the game, mostly due to technology and scale. Sun Tzu's Art of War has a lot of great advice, but definitely failed to address what happens when you have instantaneous planetary-wide wireless communication, then what? Ooh. <laughs> if you broadcast a message, it could be potentially heard by the world. We've expanded our public channel to the zenith. This makes things ridiculously convenient for communication, logistics, organization, chain of command, large-scale projects. Mm. But ironically enough, when you need it the most in war, you ought not to use it due to its public nature. Ideally, the sender and receiver each have some sort of magic key. And that one key can encode or decode a message. So that way you can send the message in band on a public radio network, for example, but only you too can encode or decode it. That would be lovely. But it's right there that we see the chink in the armor. Because even if you have a perfect coding system of some kind, you have the key exchange problem. This problem has been baffling people for a thousand years. If two people want to share a secret or share a number, but they only have the public channel to do so, that means there's no out-of-band way. There's no way they're going to meet up in person. There's no other app that they've got. Nope. If you and I have never met before, how can you and I exchange a password or a key over a totally public channel 
that only you and I know while the rest of the world is listening. Can't be done. The key exchange problem. This has been known, theorized about, and worked on for centuries. I mean, let's imagine America has a hundred diplomats in a hundred countries. One way to do it is have them all meet up right before departure and hand them all a secret magic number, a key. Then they go fly around the world and now you can communicate with all your diplomats. So that would be called an out of band key exchange. And let's just say your coding encryption system is perfect, but one out of those hundred diplomats showed that secret key to one person one time. Boom. So if one enemy gets one code one time, everything instantly shatters your whole system. Now your hundred diplomats around the world, you have to exchange a new key. We're back where we started. And this plan of trusting a group of people with a secret key does not scale well, my friends. You figure a thousand people know the same secret. Well, you could just one by one offer each of them a hundred million bucks to tell you the secret. I'd imagine at least one person would turn. Well, what if you scale it up to a million people know the secret? Now, what are the odds that someone's going to turn? You see, it doesn't scale. So ideally what you'd have to do is create a different key for every sender and receiver pair. For example, I got a hundred diplomats and each one of them has a different number shared with me. Compartmentalize a little bit. So that way if one gets compromised, it doesn't compromise the whole system. Perfect. All right, but let's say those diplomats want to call each other. Well, they need a key. Oh, key exchange problem. Every new diplomat that shows up would have to go out of band and one by one meet the other hundred diplomats around the world in order to exchange a key. Oh. Now, if we scale it up to a million people that all have to exchange keys with each other, did that get easier or harder? Mm. At some point, it becomes impossible because you don't have a solution to the key exchange problem. You're not able to exchange it in band. So the holy grail is finding a solution to the key exchange problem. And along with key exchange, it's got to solve a few other problems. One is message integrity. Is it complete with nothing cut out of there and otherwise exactly as the sender wrote it? The opposite of this would be like a paper document. You could just delete a couple paragraphs, scratch out the coordinates and put in new ones, reprint it. They won't know the difference. Ooh. So how can the receiver tell the difference between what is real and what's fake? There's no point in having a perfect encryption scheme here if people can just put in fake information anytime anyway. And the other problem it's got to solve is validity, valid. Are you sure this was sent from exactly who you think it is? If this is an order from the president, are you 100% sure it's from the president and not someone else along the way claiming to be the president? How do you know for sure? Oh yeah, in World War II, they did things like sending fake orders to the troops, telling them to retreat. They hear it on the radio as orders from their superiors and just go with it. Due to there not being a solution to the key exchange problem, early 20th century, they took a lot of creative solutions around it. One of the most famous examples would be the Enigma machine. It basically looked like an oversized typewriter. It wasn't the first of its kind. For that, you got to go back to 1915. Two Dutch naval officers, Lieutenant Theo von Hengel and Lieutenant Spengler, made the very first. And the code of the day would be where you set these five, six rotors, and then they mechanically click and clack together. And that way they're able to mix up the message. So even though they don't have a solution to the key exchange problem, 
Instead, in order to understand these codes, you have to have the actual machine and you have to have the day code. So likewise with the Enigma machine, indeed, Central Command had to send out these code books once a month all around the world. But we're back to the same problem. If you got 4,000 copies of that code book out there, if only one gets compromised, the whole system shatters. So in order to read the message, you have to have both the code and the machine. So that famous chap, Alan Turing, worked for Allied Forces, and of course, by day one, they already had one of the machines sitting there. He basically built a computer from scratch that just sits there and guesses key combinations. So every day, in effect, he could crack the key in less than an hour. My favorite solution, though, is the Navajo Code Talkers. At its peak, there was over 400 heroes volunteering from various American tribes. And not only do they have one of the most complex languages in the world, but these Marines further codified it. Company commander wrote down a message asking for help, handed to a Navajo Code Talker. This is what the Navajo Code Talker said. This is the actual message that was sent on Iwo. What does that mean? This is what he said in Navajo. Sheep, eyes, nose, deer, destroyer, teeth, mouse, turkey, onion, sick horse, three, six, two, bear. As each Navajo word came through the air, the code talker down at the beach command post, he writes it down in English. What did he write down? Send demolition team to Hill 362B. This message took 20 seconds. After 20 seconds, beach command post organized a rescue team to save that company of Marines. If that message was sent in English code, it would have taken 30 minutes, 20 seconds in Navajo, 30 minutes in English code. Those guys pinned down on North Side didn't have 30 minutes. Without Navajo, Marines would never have taken the island of Iwo Jima. That's how critical Navajo code was to the war in the Pacific and we should never forget. In the middle of an amphibious assault, time is of the essence, my friends. These gentlemen can send a message in less than a minute. From a cryptanalysis and mathematical perspective, the Navajo code is unbreakable. And in terms of validity, a native Navajo speaker can immediately recognize a native Navajo speaker. No Japanese enemy soldier will fake that. So it's a really creative way around the key exchange problem. Only these Navajo can talk to Navajo. But we didn't solve the problem. Now, instead of exchanging keys, we have to exchange actual human Navajos. You've got to move them around the world, and they have to be at the front lines of every battle. And if even just one of them is a spy in turns or gets captured, the entire system shatters. There are countless more creative solutions that brilliant folks have been using for over 100 years. But as brilliant as they are, none of them actually solve the holy grail problem. Key exchange over a public network. The moment that gets discovered, solved, and invented, 
then all of these ideas become laughably obsolete. After World War II, all those branches dealing with cryptanalysis, codes, and communication didn't slow down. They expanded exponentially. In effect, many of them got a blank check. Keep doing that. Now that the world respected the importance of code, funding isn't a problem. The best and smartest people on earth cranked on this, the key exchange problem. It's right there that this story really begins. To get there, we got to zoom ahead three decades to the 60s and 70s. By then, cryptography is even more important. Entire branches of the government all using the phone system. The first internet messages are making their way around the world. Solving the key exchange problem cannot be done with the normal tools. In fact, most of the textbooks at the time declared it impossible. To solve it, you're going to need someone with a radically different way of thinking. A person who's part whack job and weirdo and part super genius. In the mid-70s, just such a group happened to come together. Our first hero that really made some amazing contributions here is good old Ralph Merkel. Now this guy's amazing. He was fascinated with cryptography in his early teens. In 1974, when he was about 22 years old, he wrote an undergrad thesis making the claim he solved the key exchange problem. He had a really creative solution called Merkle puzzles. The skinny of it sort of worked like this. You could imagine the server sends you a box that can be unlocked with some random 20-digit number. And let's just say your computer, it'll take about an hour for it to guess the right number on average and open the box. Inside of there is a secret key you can use to talk to the server. By itself, that doesn't really solve it. Any attacker could do the same thing, also spend an hour and pull out that number too. So in reality, the server will actually send like 10 million boxes with a unique key inside each one. And the receiver will randomly pick one. Solve that one box in one hour, boom, have that one unique key. Uses that key to send a message back to the server. Found it. The only way an attacker could find it is if they actually decode all 10 million boxes. So really, it would have taken an attacker 10 million times longer to get that key. The only way to scale it up is to have a billion boxes or 10 billion boxes. So the higher you go, the more information you have to send. Imagine trying to send 10 gigabytes worth of data back in the late 70s. Ooh, ouch. Plus, to make it sufficiently hard, you'd have to crank your computer for an hour, two hours, one day. Its security partially relies on the fact that your attacker has similar computing power to you. So by today's standards, it's a really primitive and clunky system. But make no mistake, folks, he solved it. It does technically work. In fact, if you had enough data and made it big enough, technically you could compete with the security level of modern crypto systems. If we use a metaphor of a car, we'd consider Merkle puzzles like a car that goes one mile an hour, is super uncomfortable and loud, and goes only one centimeter per liter of fuel. But it technically works, and it's technically a car. It was funny, though, when he turned in this paper, it actually originally got rejected. I mean, first of all, because he's claiming to solve the unsolvable key exchange problem. Puh! Any 20-year-old undergrad claiming to have solved the impossible deserves a little extra skepticism. Also, he quoted almost zero sources, because no one else is trying to solve it. He's on a new frontier. To be sure, there's a bunch of those CIA, NSA people working on this problem, but they're certainly not public. 
and don't like being referenced in academic papers. And when you're spending your days over there at Berkeley and Stanford, you tend to be surrounded by some of the smartest people in the world, those folks that are on the frontier of new discoveries. Now we get to one of the true hipsters, one of my heroes, Whit Diffie. You see pictures of this guy? He's like surfer, hippie, long hair, beard, you bet. If you can imagine the movie Good Will Hunting, yeah, the main character Will, janitor and math genius. In many ways, Wit is a lot like Will. These gentlemen share a lot of similarities, although Wit Diffie's a really nice guy. You know how those smart kids are in school? In high school, he basically just dropped out. With his intellect, he's way beyond his teachers. In fact, before even graduating, he applied at MIT and took one of their entrance exams. Despite not having so much as a GED, and yeah, he got accepted to MIT on the basis of, quote, stratospheric test scores on standardized exams. Full ride college scholarship, they just wanted him around. Of course, he barely showed up to class and did the absolute minimum required to graduate. It was much more of an honorary degree. And we need to appreciate that the mid-70s, a lot was going on. And a lot of those places need a genius like Whit Diffie on their team. He became a defense contractor for a while, worked on the LISP programming language, and even helped develop MathLab. Later on, Stanford wanted Whit Diffie on their list of alumni, invited him out for his PhD. Full ride scholarship. Of course, he barely showed up and didn't even finish. <laughs> Those trips he spent camping, surfing, traveling America in his van. He also spent thinking. Number theory, group theory, pattern recognition, imaginary numbers, Fibonacci sequence, the very structures and foundation of mathematics itself. He stumbled onto some ideas on how to solve the key exchange problem. But I'll let him tell you in his own words. This is the voice of Whit Diffie himself. I began thinking about uh, electronic offices. And what I didn't see was what you would do for signatures in an electronic office. Because written signatures depend on their uniqueness and digital documents were always perfectly reproducible. I didn't see how you could have a digital signature, and I didn't see how you could run an office without signed memos, signed checks, signed directives, etc. So I began thinking about that. And in the spring of 1975, eventually I realized I came to what are now called digital signatures. I thought the mere fact that you could recognize a correct solution to a problem and so you could sign something, and I realized you could turn that around and use that system to establish communication, but people and people had no, no prior contact with each other. You have a, a public key that you can list in a telephone book, and I look it up and I want to send you a message, and I can encrypt using that key, but I can't decrypt the results. Only you can decrypt the results. The paradigm of conventional cryptography is that you and I share a small amount of secret information, we call the key, a few hundred bits, and that we can use that to protect gigabits of information. The problem with that is that we have, in some sense, already know each other fairly well, but we have to be within a structure, and so something has to convey the same key to you and to me securely before we can use cryptography in our communications. 
Now, the trouble is that does not suit the world we were going into. That would not be at all good for the internet, in which what is so wonderful is that people with no connection to each other, they don't know each other. So, public key cryptography is a scheme two of us can negotiate in public, and everything we say is heard by all of the observers. But at the end of our negotiation, we come up with a secret that both of us know and none of the observers know. And that underlies the big internet security mechanism, which is called transport layer security, in which I, as a client, call a server somewhere, and we enter into a negotiation that ends up with a cryptographic key that's in, then used to protect all of our communications between ourselves. So without public key cryptography, you couldn't do this without building a whole lot of centralized infrastructure that would amount to the world having to trust something. Security is the science of minimizing trust. And public key cryptography made a great contribution to minimizing the trust. Around this time, he met another gentleman, Dr. Martin Hellman. Now, Hellman's a clean-cut academic, collared shirt, no parking tickets, and can speak the academic language. It was Hellman who suggested that Mr. Diffie ought to meet Ralph Merkel. I'll let Dr. Mark Hellman say it in his own words. Ralph is one of the great unsung heroes of uh, cryptography. A few minutes into the conversation, it was clear that he knew more about cryptography than most people with PhDs or even professors in the area. No one at Berkeley appreciated him. I basically kidnapped him and brought him to Stanford to do his PhD research. I, Whit Diffie has called me a great talent scout. I am very good at recognizing talent. Whit and Ralph were overlooked and I saw something in them. Ralph is one of the great unsung heroes, no question. And Merkel trees, as you point out, are used all over the place. Uh, he was and is a brilliant researcher and deserves a lot more credit. Uh, working with Ralph was a privilege and an honor. It was then these three minds came together. Little did they know they were about to stumble into one of the biggest discoveries of the 20th century. One of the most amazing and awe-inspiring algorithms in computer science history. The first proposed project was to develop the privacy side of public key cryptography, secure communication over insecure channels without prearrangement. The other people who got interested in it worked on it for one or two or three weeks. Six months later, I was thinking about nothing else. At the time, the blooming problem was cryptography, and I began working on that. And the spring of 73, we got back out here, and I called Marty, and he graciously granted me half an hour of his time. And, uh, you know, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. We worked together for four years, but two people can work on a problem better than one. So. But I was always an outsider. But my judgment at that time was that they, in fact, didn't know a lot about data networks. I never saw anything that they did in this respect that seemed particularly remarkable. I mean, networking was not the thing it is today. I think it's a fair statement to say that public key cryptography enabled e-commerce. That's very close to what we had in mind to begin with. I did not have the imagination to see the web. I saw the problem, right? but I didn't, didn't have the foresight to see the solution. My original motivation, well, I imagined 100 million secure telephones in North America. The techniques that were developed sort of toward that objective then 
became successful being the security technique for the web. And so you need something that requires less than the intimate relationship of knowing secrets together before you start out working on something. So a public key cryptography is a good example of a full home run. Uh, all my colleagues initially told me that I was foolish to work in cryptography before we had the, these results. And they had two very good reasons. The first is, uh, how can you hope to discover something that NSA, the American National Security Agency, doesn't already know because they have this huge budget, they've got decades head start. And the second uh, argument was, if you do anything good, they, meaning NSA, will classify it. And both arguments had validity. Both arguments came to haunt us eventually. And yet winning the Turing Award and all the other major awards we've won for doing this work says how wise it was to do something that appeared so foolish. It flew in the face of conventional wisdom. Whatever sounds reasonable probably isn't. It's the crazy ideas that will make it. I was working at my desk alone one night that I came up with Alpha to the X1X2, or now as most people call it, Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange. So I did that on my own, but I couldn't have done it without Wit, who first postulated the concept of public key cryptography, including signatures. And so you need to have a community uh, within which you work, but then you also need time on your own. So I think it's both. Let's take a moment to appreciate how valuable this is. A solution to the key exchange problem on a public network, in band, two parties can publicly talk to each other and create a key that only they know. So to consider it more practically, in World War II, if they have a solution to a key exchange problem, every boat can create a new key every day with their commander. Every diplomat can create a new key with any diplomat anytime. You could change keys every day, every hour. You could create separate keys for every single leaf, branch, tank, and soldier in the entire military. Easily, a client sitting at home and their computer can instantly create a new key with their bank online and send private information easily. The bank, for that matter, can make a new key for every single user connected to it. Why not? Because it's so cheap and easy to exchange new keys, then let's just take it to the zenith. Nerds like to use the word ephemeral, ephemerality, the concept of being transitory, temporary, fleeting, existing only briefly. Modern crypto systems even use a mechanism called the double ratchet Diffie-Hellman. Basically, it's a scheme that you can use a different key for every single packet of data. Ooh! So even if an attacker catches one of these keys somehow, the best you can do is decrypt one grain of dust. Good for you! Their solution renders all other forms of cryptography and all other attempts and workarounds for the key exchange problem, renders them all obsolete. Navajo code talkers? Nope. Enigma machines, rotor machines? Don't need them. This is basically a perfect encryption system. If one nation's fighting a war in another nation, and their enemies just inherit this technology, all of their communication goes instantly dark, unbreakable, forever. Before this day in 1976, the United States government could actually read all information out there on the whole internet, phone system, everywhere. But after this day, it all goes dark. We also need to appreciate that codes, ciphers, equipment, and systems like this are considered weapons of war. Let's face it, wars can be won or lost based on their encryption, ability to crack it, or lack thereof. Until the Enigma machine was fully declassified, if anyone so much as talked about it, treason, capital punishment. 
If a German soldier sells a code book to an American, whew, if he gets caught, you don't want to be that guy. Likewise, if any of those CIA, NSA, three-letter agency sort of fellas mumble the slightest hint as to what they're working on, life in prison. Cryptography, cryptanalysis, and codes are heavily guarded secrets. And you better believe their work is noticed. In fact, they were even receiving a lot of alarming and threatening letters, reminding them of the fact that they're talking arms dealing and treason by sharing this. Their solution certainly isn't the first crypto system ever made. Those have been going on for decades. And many of those also received similar threats from the man upstairs. In many ways, people describe the 60s and 70s as the crypto wars. The first crypto war was over freedom to publish DES key size. That was in the late 70s, early 80s, and that I was intimately involved in. And then the second crypto war was in the mid 90s, corporate chip uh, key escrow. And the third one, which is uh, basically uh, facilitate uh, exceptional access is what I think they're calling it now. I think the problem is that you cannot protect the good guys, meaning you and me, without also protecting some bad guys, you know, like terrorists, from the good guys, the uh, intelligence agencies working to bring them in. An analogy that I've used is, imagine that automobiles had been developed in the classified literature, the classified world, and the only people that had them were the police and the good military, whoever that is. And you can argue about who's good and who's bad. Uh, and suddenly, uh, some guys, Diffie and Hellman, invented the, the car in the open literature. And there was all this outcry, wait a minute, the criminals are gonna get away. The, you know, uh, what'll happen? And that's true, but it's overlooking all the benefits that the transportation would provide to the world as a whole. And so we need to balance those. It's also important to appreciate how much is the perfect unbreakable encryption system worth? To say it a different way, if you're sitting there at the UN in front of all these nations and it becomes an auction, how high will that price go? <laughs> Billions of dollars, my friends. For that matter, what about the CIA and NSA themselves? These gentlemen could have sold this for a king's ransom of money each and be set for life easily. But they had a different idea. Their 1976 paper called New Directions in Cryptography outlined exactly how it all worked. They went over to a copy machine, made a few thousand, and actually mailed them out to their friends and academics around the world. The genie is out of the bottle. Nothing anyone can do about it. It's out in the wild now. Very interesting thing for me was to be at the RSA Data Security Conference, approximately 2000, let's say. And it's the first year that it went from hundreds of people to thousands of people. And I walked in and I thought, you know, I knew this was important. I imagined millions of devices working, trillions of bits moving. But I never understood how many people had to be hustling to turn a buck to make that happen. If I'd had that commercial insight, I would have been much better off. This was, you know, when it suddenly became a tremendous business. And that really, I think, was a clear sign of the sudden shift of this technology from being government property to being primarily commercial. And at a level of bottom line, you know, by still as early as the early 90s probably, the largest cryptographic systems, most widely deployed, were military. But by 2000, they were just utterly dwarfed. SSL is probably the most widely deployed cryptographic security mechanism ever. Smart cards, 
dwarf anything the military has ever done. Set-top boxes, when went from being crude analog computers to very sophisticated high-grade crypto systems. All of these things just dwarf any of the military deployments. And it bears repeating, after this 1976 publication, all other forms of key exchange and two-party communication, every technology made in that field is all instantly obsolete. You just gave this brand new magic tech to every nation, every belligerent, every group, every bank, every business, and every terrorist on this earth. All at once. It's the dawn of a new era. Now, of course, in that era, this wasn't the only piece of technology made. In fact, this was used in combination with RSA encryption and symmetric keys and block ciphers and all kinds of stuff. The Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange is, is a fundamental component to all of these systems. In fact, it is at the very foundation of all communication over the Internet. So let's take a deeper look at how the Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange actually works. I promise you, it's a thing of beauty. Now, of course, to understand it fully at its deepest level basically requires a PhD in mathematics. And it pulls in ideas from several different theories spanning many branches of mathematics. I've got to oversimplify things, but with luck, I can peel back a few layers for you. I think a good starting point would be set theory, S-E-T, things in a set. Now, this is a really wild idea, actually, by this fella, George Cantor, 150 years ago. But it begs the question, what is a number and what is the number line? For example, we could say counting numbers are one, two, three, four, five, six, no decimals. We can think of that as a subset of all possible numbers. Okay. We could think of integers, which would be positive, negative, and zero, but still not have any decimals. Okay. But do all the numbers have to go in order? Can we have numbers in any order or no order? Can we create our own set of numbers? To say it another way, could I theoretically set up my own mathematical universe, complete with all the numbers I choose, and then define operations such as addition, multiplication, division, in effect, create my own mathematical virtual world? Turns out you can. So this notion of being able to create your own virtual mathematical world has developed and been studied for the last 150 years. Here'd be an interesting example of that. Claude Shannon. He made his own mathematical universe that only contains two numbers, zero and one, and they're in no particular order. From there, he defined how normal addition works, but he set up a bunch of primitives, including OR gate, AND gate, exclusive OR, majority, and in effect, laid the foundations for our entire digital society. And indeed, it operates differently than our normal world. For example, in normal mathematics, one plus one equals two. But in Claude Shannon's digital world, if you consider one as being true and zero as being false, well, true plus true equals true. One plus one equals one. That's weird, but it works in his world. The idea of having an entire system built on simply zero and one was simply not possible before set theory. But truly, the sky's the limit. Since then, set theory has been used to solve a lot of seemingly impossible problems. 
Other examples of this include, you could restrict numbers to being on the surface of a 3D cube only. No other numbers are allowed. Hmm. Or restrict it to only imaginary numbers on a certain 3D line. So the Diffie-Hellman key exchange was actually designed to work on a variety of sets, but in practice usually work the best when the set is finite. It does not go to positive or negative infinity, and you can't have an infinitely long decimal. Now, another critical component of the Diffie-Hellman key exchange is the associative property, and we could say commutative property. They're both very related. We are actually very familiar with this already. Addition, for example, of three numbers. You can actually add them up in any order. A plus B plus C equals C plus B plus A. You get the same result regardless of the order. Multiplication has this property as well. Two times three times four equals four times three times two. That right there is where the solution to the key exchange problem lives. So I invent a big random number that we'll call A. That's secret only to me. I don't even tell you, the recipient. In the meantime, you invent a big new random number that only you know, B. Then we agree on a common number and we publicly tell the world that, C. So when we do this magic key exchange, the actual shared secret key we end up with is actually A times B times C. So I don't actually tell you my secret number, I only tell you and the world my secret number times C. I send that result only, not the original. So even you don't know what my secret number is. So I would actually mix up A times C and hand it over to you. All you gotta do is multiply in B, you got it. In the meantime, you send over to me B times C, and once I receive it, I multiply it times A. Got it? Because again, we can do them in any order. In fact, we could even expand it up and have three people, four people, five people. Same concept, multiply them all together. W times X times Y times Z times C, the common number. That's our key between the four of us. So that's the skinny of it. Because of the associative property, we can multiply them all together in any order and get the same answer that only you and I know. Because we need all three numbers to get that answer, but at most the world can only get two out of three. They can never get that third secret magic number that each of us are holding. All that's fine and dandy until we get to the trouble of inverse operation. To undo it, the opposite. In this case, B times C, for example, well, I can just undo it by dividing by C. And the answer pops out B, got it, easy. So our example simplistic approach here wouldn't really work in practice because multiplication is reversible. So we're not there yet. So as a next step, they actually use exponents to do the heavy lifting. Because likewise, there's an associative exponent rule. That means, for example, I can take C to the power of A, and then take all that to the power of B. To solve this, you just multiply the exponents. So really, it becomes C to the power of A times B. That means you could also swap the order of the exponents. C to the power of A, 
all to the power of B equals C to the power of B all to the power of A. Either way, you get the same answer. That's cool. But there's an issue again here. Doing exponents is actually also reversible. The reverse of an exponent is actually a logarithm. So yeah, C to the power of X. I could use logarithms with that result and tell you what X is. Pretty easy. So we're getting closer, but not there yet. The whole point of this kind of cryptography in the first place is make it impossible for your attacker to know your secret number. And the fact that this is reversible makes it totally unusable in this case. So what we need to find is a non-reversible algorithm that is associative. In cryptography, they call this a trap door function. You can slip and fall in and down easy, but you can't get back out. A mathematical function that's not reversible. At the time, the RSA crypto system had a very interesting trapdoor function of their own. Instead of a random number, they would pick a super huge hundred digit prime number. Because if you multiply two hundred digit prime numbers together to do the division and find out what were the two original inputs, ooh, that's considered computationally complex and at a certain point infeasible, not possible, can't be done. Not with the resources on this planet. However, the Diffie-Hellman key exchange doesn't rely on prime numbers. Instead, they rely on set theory, finite fields, modulus, and ultimately discrete mathematics. The best explanation I ever heard for discrete mathematics and modulus referred to like a video game effect. In the video game, the screen or world doesn't move. But if your character goes off the right side, he'll pop in on the left. If you go down past the bottom, you pop out the top. So no matter how far you run, you're always going to be inside this one unmoving game screen. There's a finite number of places you can be. You cannot go infinitely in all directions. In our own world, we use this all the time. The clock moves only in one direction, but after it crosses 12, it starts back over at zero. In effect, so the hour that a clock can display is only 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. After that, it starts over. It's finite and it's discrete, meaning we restrict it to whole numbers and we only restrict it to these 12. That's all it means. Another way we could think about this would be, let's restrict numbers to only being 10 digits long. Any number higher than that, it just starts back over at zero. So the largest number you can display would be 9 billion, 999 million, blah, 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 blah. Okay, here's the thing. If I pick a two-digit number and multiply it by a two-digit number, ha, huh, you can just use division and figure out where we started. Easy. Okay, but if I take a hundred-digit long number and multiply it times a hundred-digit long number, the result will be a 10,000-digit long number. That's a beast, that's for sure. <laughs> But I don't tell you the full 10,000 digit number. Nope, I only tell you the last 10. Uh-oh. You don't have enough information to reverse it. You can't do it simply. Now you're forced to basically check them all one by one. And I promise you this, to check every single number from one to blah, 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 100 digit number, ha, <laughs> age of the universe. Another way of describing modulus would be considering remainder. 
So for example, if I have a number like 123, and I want to do modulus 100, oh, when I divide 123 by 100, the answer is 1, remainder 23. That remainder is the answer. So if I'm doing modulus 100, all of my results will be less than 100. We can think of modulus as the dimensions of that video game that we're playing. So if the game board is 800 pixels wide and 600 pixels tall, we just take our location, modulus 800, modulus 600. Our result, the remainder, will always be smaller than those dimensions. Easy. In fact, that's actually how they program it. <laughs> now, the Diffie-Hellman key exchange can be implemented in whatever scheme you'd like and whatever length of numbers you'd like. But a common scheme relies on our old friend 2 to the 256 power. It's a nice round number that computers like to work with. Now in our normal decimal world, it's about a 77 digit number. So if you can imagine taking a 77 digit number to the exponent, you know, to the power of a 77 digit number, and then taking that whole result to the power of another 77 digit number, hooey, the result of that is huge, my friend. In fact, regardless of the exact number you choose, when we're talking this scale, you can't actually even compute it. The full original number is way beyond crazy town. As a matter of fact, the full number can't even be written down. It's impossible. Even if you wrote a digit on every single atom in the entire universe, you would not have enough atoms to even write it down, let alone time. <laughs> but that's just it. They cut off all the stuff on the top and they only look at the final 77 digits. So again, if you do have the original complete number, theoretically you could use logarithms and derive the original key. Sure. But definitely not on numbers that big, no sir. But even if you could, they don't even give you the full original mega number. They only give you the last 77 digits. On our normal number line and normal number world, taking a logarithm is easy, trivial. But when you only got the last 77 digits to work with, we're in the world of discrete math, and logarithms don't work once you start cutting off digits from the original answer. It can't be done. The only way to get there is a good old-fashioned guess and check. Formally, this is known as the discrete logarithm problem. So beyond the Diffie-Hellman key exchange, a lot of encryption algorithms rely on the fact that there's no solution to the discrete logarithm problem. As soon as you take huge numbers to the power of huge numbers to the power of huge numbers, it cannot be reversed. And the result's gonna look super random and give you no clues. So from a theoretical standpoint, that's it. So conceptually, for two parties to pull this off, all we've gotta do is together publicly agree on a starting number and then we agree on the modulus. That means what's the maximum size the result will be. In both cases, for a variety of reasons, they love to use prime numbers. Mostly because when you start doing exponents and stuff, they don't have any patterns to them. For example, using a nice even round number like one trillion, nah, it's got a lot of zeros in it. So the results are gonna have a lot of zeros too. <laughs> just as an example. 
Now, I've poured over this and similar topics for years. One thing that's traditionally bothered me is most explanations stop there. I mean, how can you take a 77-digit number to the power of a 77-digit number and wave your hand and say, that's fast and easy? Because when it comes to powers, I and most people were taught the quote-quote naive approach. For example, 5 to the power of 10 is 5 times 5 times 5 times 5 times 5 times 10 times. That's the definition. And that's true. So 5 to the power of a billion will take about a billion operations. But what if you take 5 to the gazillion, gazillion, zillion, zillion power? Well, that'll take longer than the age of the universe. So needless to say, computers don't do that. <laughs> Over the last 500 years, mathematicians found a whole bunch of shortcuts. One dimension is something called trivial operations. Here's a quick example. In our normal base 10 number system here, I can take a number like 123 times 1,000. Well, the answer is 123,000. That was easy. I don't even need a calculator. Same thing, 4 times a billion is 4 billion. I'm good at this. An uneducated 5-year-old can calculate this instantly. In our case of having a base 10 number system, multiplying or dividing anything by 10, we just have to shift the numbers left or right. Easy. Well, it stands to reason, if you have a base 2 digital system like computers, anytime you multiply or divide by 2, same idea. You just have to shift it over. So, for example, in binary, 111, if you double it, shift it to the left, now it's 1110. So even if you have a 10,000-bit-long number, to double it, just shift it left one place. Easy. You don't even have to look inside. As you know, all computers are built on ones and zeros, the binary system, so they love doubling and halving. In fact, every single time you're multiplying by a power of 2, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, etc., a binary computer, it's one operation. So in this example, indeed, a 256-bit number to the power of a 256-bit number in the normal naive method would be totally undoable. You're right. Hence, computer science relies a lot on knowing what computers are extremely good at and optimizing the approach and take advantage of that. The last 500 years have bestowed millions of mathematical tricks. It's often the case that some dude will think up something a few hundred years ago and it gets lost to obscurity, but in our modern world, we find a use for it. The perfect case in which it matters. The winning ticket and the secret sauce that helps us solve the unsolvable. In this case, we got to go back to the age of Napoleon, about 250 years ago. There was this gentleman, Joseph Louis Lagrange. This guy was into it all. Calculus, number theory, mathematics, celestial bodies, astronomy, history, analytical mechanics, engineering. And it was Lagrange who was working on the metric system. In fact, the meter, the kilogram with decimal subdivision, that's him. Along the way, he basically found a shortcut for doing exponents' powers. 2 to the 10th is 1,024. So 5 to the power of 1,024, naively, that would take 1,024 operations. But the shortcut would be, I could just take 5 squared, take that result and square it, take that result and square it, take that result and square it, and do so 10 times. Oh, 2 to the 10th is 1,024. Oh! So instead of 1,024 operations, 10 operations. Easy. And the bigger the exponent, the more time savings you get. So in decimal, 77-digit number to the power of a 77-digit number, and binary is 
256-bit number to the power of a 256-bit number. Yeah, the exponent's already in ones and zeros. You've just got to march through it. Well, you can actually do that in 256 operations. And as you go through that exponent, depending if it's a one or a zero, you can square it, double it, or add it to itself. All three of which are wicked fast on a computer. For perspective, modern computers can easily do 256 million operations in about a tenth of a blink of an eye. But what about memory? If this math equation requires multiple terabytes of information, let alone atoms in the universe, it's not going to work. Well, let's remind ourselves the result thereafter is only going to be 77 digits long, or 256 bits. Anything larger than that, they can just cut it off. So the most they have to remember is 256 bits, which is nothing for a computer. A third-tier off-the-shelf smartwatch could save a billion copies of that and still not be full. And a cool property of discrete mathematics, if your result is going to be a 77-digit number only, then every step of the way, you can also cut it down to a 77-digit number only and just work with that. In the end, you get the same result. Sweet! So when you pull this all together, it's a thing of beauty, folks. Let's look at the big picture. To initiate communication, party A just has to send two 77-digit numbers, a common and then his mixed. They mix the common with their key and send you back their 77-digit number. Done! Which is about the same amount of bits of information of a one-line text message. That's all the traffic you need. And the actual computation and workload of it is so trivially small it's almost negligible. In fact, a 1920s IBM punch card system could very easily bang out everything required for the Diffie-Hellman key exchange. And every message sent between you two is 100% valid definitely from you. And we know it's complete and unaltered, impossible to fake, because of this key system, the Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange. This is why people refer to Whit Diffie, Ralph Merkel, and Dr. Martin Hellman as the godfathers of modern public key cryptography. But let's remember, this is just the beginning. That's just the prologue. Once they solve the key exchange problem, it creates a new world. New world begets new problems, necessitating new solutions. About 10 years after the Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange got published, these two gentlemen, Neil Koblitz and Victor Miller, published work on elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange. It's got the same core concepts of exponents, modulus, wrapping it back around. But one cool thing with the Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange is it can work on a variety of sets, variety of mathematical worlds. It is not just restricted to normal integers. In this elliptic curve world, they restrict the numbers to only those living on this bell-shaped curve. No other numbers are allowed. Details aside, they got some quick tricks such that they can jump around this curve zillion, zillion, zillion times in just a couple operations. And wherever they land is the shared key. And no matter where you end up on this curve, it gives you no clues to the steps you took to get there. Most modern crypto systems, including Bitcoin, use elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman as their primary mechanism. As we wrap things up, I do got to circle back to Ralph Merkel. After all these decades, he's still alive and he's still at it. In the meantime, Ralph Merkel also got into nanotechnology. Like, how can you write an entire novel on the head of a pen? Oh yeah, they figured that out long ago. 
He's also into cryogenically freezing people and reanimating them using nanobots. And as it stands, he's already made countless huge contributions. In short, he's crushing it. He spent a lot of time in the hash algorithm world. He's very well known for the Merkel Dam Guard construction, which is the fundamental component of the SHA-256 hash algorithm. That's him. But in my opinion, his biggest contribution is something called Merkel Trees. So you can imagine it like if you have a one gigabyte movie file, they'll make a hash of every tiny piece of data, then they can hash every kilobyte, hash every megabyte, and thus create a hash for the whole thing, the Merkel root. So you can verify the integrity of an entire one gigabyte file by looking at one number. Ooh, talk about shortcuts, huh? <laughs> I want to be clear though, folks. The type of Merkle trees a lot of folks are familiar with goes by a different name, blockchain. It's a fair statement to say Ralph Merkle is the godfather of blockchain. As a matter of fact, if you're feeling real nerdy, you can crack open the source code of Bitcoin and search for the text string Merkle. His name is slapped all over the top algorithms in there, especially the most fundamental pieces. Just look at the key components that make Bitcoin work. Public key cryptography, SHA-256 hash, blockchain, digital signatures. A lot of people are quick to credit Satoshi Nakamoto as the author of Bitcoin. But everyone, including Satoshi himself, will tell you he stood on the shoulders of these three giants. Diffie, Hellman, and Merkel. To Satoshi's credit, however, he figured out how to make it distributed, how to tie together these three ideas to build an autonomous, distributed, planet-wide supercomputer. That counts for something. As we watch blockchain technology change the world, Web 3.0 become the norm. And as humanity expands its communication to new heights, we have these three gentlemen to thank. Perhaps the unsung heroes... These gentlemen bestowed a gift to us all. Maybe it's like the invention of the wheel. Electricity, lighting, refrigeration, modern plastics, the steam engine. The gift of ownership. Owning our data. Owning our conversation. Owning our privacy. Whit Diffie once pointed out that if you don't allow people to protect their conversations, you're taking a long step away from a free society to a totalitarian society. In a sense, communication networks can be defined entirely by who has the cryptographic keys. A lot of networks will work that way into the future. Indeed, a lot of people like to say, not your keys, not your crypto. Not your keys, not your conversation. And this story is still being told, unfolding every day. Their contributions will echo into the future of humanity forever.